This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The New Zealand Young Writers Festival celebrates the cutting edge of contemporary literary practice in Aotearoa with performances, workshops, conversations, markets, social events, and more. The festival is funded by Dunedin City Council and Otago Community Trust. This live recorded podcast is brought to you by Otago Access Radio and supported by Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature. Under the Glass, a Starling celebration. In this episode, join Starling Magazine editor Louise Wallace in conversation with Erin Gourley and Molly Crichton, two writers who undertook Starling micro-residencies in the Otago Museum during the festival. This event was sponsored by Starling Magazine and the Otago Museum. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Nā mihi mahana ki a tātou, kua taimai ki te tautoko ēnei, kai tuhi rangatahi i tēnei rā. Um, welcome, thank you for joining us uh, for this session to support these young writers, Molly and Erin. Uh, my name is Louise um, and I... I run Starling, which hopefully most of you here know what it is, but I'll give a quick run through. Um, it's an online journal for New Zealand writers under 25. You can find us at starlingmag.com. Um, we have been in operation now for six years. We're currently working on issue 13. Uh, it's edited by myself and my friend Francis Cook. Uh, but we have recently uh, managed to establish an editorial committee which is made up of uh, young writers previously published in Starling. So that is currently Tate Fountain, Sinead Overby and Claudia Jardine. Um, it will be a revolving committee. Um, yeah, so if any of you out there are under 25 and interested to sending us your work, I'd really encourage you to do so. We're open to all kinds of writing um, and you can find all the submission guidelines at our website. Uh, and if you know of any other young writers who might be keen, um, please encourage them. Sometimes you need some encouragement when you're a young writer. Um, but yeah, it's our second time this year joining forces with uh, the Young Writers Festival. Um, so we've uh, in the past offered these micro-resonancies. And this year um, it's been really awesome to really focus on offering them to local Dunedin writers. Um, I think that's a really important part of this festival is um, it's lovely having out-of-towners in and I up until very recently was an out-of-towner um, but I think it's, there's something really special about focusing on the writers here as well so it's a real pleasure to do that. Um, so this year it was offered to local Dunedin writers who had previously been published in Starling um, and they have been hosted at Otago Museum for four days uh, which has been concentrated writing time and a change of scene as well um, so Molly and Erin will also have the opportunity to work there tomorrow as the final day um, so I'm going to introduce our writers uh, so we've got Molly Crichton um, so Molly's work has been published in Landfall, A Fine Line, Starling, Tarot, Takahe and The Cormorant uh, she was placed third in the 2021 Page and Blackmore short story competition and she was a featured poet for the 2019 National Poetry Day. Uh, Molly has used the residency time 
to continue working on her first full collection of poems, which is a series of dramatic monologues. And Erin Gawley. Um, so Erin studied English and law at Otago University, and she's the current editor of Critic magazine. Erin's uh, residency project is a short story about a flat who discover that a group of birds have taken over their living room. And so it's obviously a humorous story, uh, but it's also one that explores how people uh, respond to a crisis. Um, so what I'm going to do now is focus on each author individually, uh, and I'll also get them to kick off their section by doing a reading from the work that they've been uh, creating at the museum. Uh, I haven't heard this work either, so I'm really excited to hear it, and I think that will give us a good footing to to go on to kind of explore that further and then at the end I'm going to go into a section with uh, both writers and we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to be a young writer today, what it means to be a young writer in Dunedin uh, and just that kind of climate that they're working in. Um, there will be time at the end for any questions that you guys might have uh, so if you want to tuck things away as we speak uh, then there will certainly be time for that at the end, and I'm sure they would love to engage with you all about their work. Um, so we will start with Molly. Um, so Molly, I'm just going to ask you to read some of the pieces from the collection, if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm quite a fan of the Otago Museum. I really like to go there, and I've written poems about it before because I find it quite an inspiring place. Um, and on my first day there, I got this really excellent tour from one of the guides who work there. And if you get a chance to go to the museum, I encourage you to try and engage any of them in conversation because they're all massive, wonderful nerds who have really <laughs> interesting interests. And I loved getting shown around by them. But um, the tour guide I was with, we went up to the animal attic and he was showing me these two taxidermied wolves. And one of them was this really big European wolf and the other one was a little wolf I didn't recognise because it's extinct now, called the Falkland Islands wolf. Um, and he was saying how European wolves have adapted to be afraid of humans and that's how they survive. But the Falkland Islands wolf, when I think it was Charles Darwin first went there in the Beagle, they, they had been the apex predators for so long that they had no fear. They weren't afraid of people, so they'd come up and eat from your hand. And apparently Charles Darwin said that he didn't think it would be long before they went extinct for that reason, and he was right, unfortunately. Because when the settlers came in and the wolves started realising that cows are pretty tasty, actually, and it's much easier to hunt them than other animals, the settlers would hold out food in one hand and a blade in the other, and they'd just slit their necks as they came up because they were so trusting. And I thought this was a really beautiful story, so I wrote a poem about it. And it's called Taxidermy Falklands Island Wolf in the Animal Attic, and it's about the Taxidermy Falkland Islands Wolf in the animal attic. <laughs> Charles Darwin stepped off the HMS Beagle and said, you'll soon go extinct, little wolf. You are too trusting, and you have not yet learned how to be afraid. A new skink plattered between his legs and ate from his evolutionist hands, licked at his scientist's fingers. Learn from ours, said Darwin. Our wolves bristle like a thousand thousand razors in the shape of a predator. They know what to fear. Here you eat from the one hand while the other holds a knife all the better to kill you with. Now glass where there should be eyes, teeth with no bite. I want you to come back to life because I am alone too and have also learned how to be afraid. I would never kill you. Come and sit on my lap, your warmth rising taxidermy dust around us like a cloud made of skin. Come and eat from my hand.
first one. And another benefit of the residency was just a bit of time to sit and work on some drafts, because something I like to do is free write, which is a fancy term for just scribbling in my notebook um, and calling it poetry, which it isn't. <laughs> but then I, I work on it later. So this is something I wrote a week or so ago that I edited. Um, and if Do any of you do your shopping at Countdown Central, just out of interest? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's this really annoying poster um, from Jenny Craig about weight loss, and I absolutely hate it with a burning passion. So this one's called Jenny Craig Weight Loss Poster by Countdown Central, and it's about the Jenny Craig Weight Loss Poster by Countdown Central. Sally, smiling with her subcutaneous white teeth, looks very thin now. She wears a red viscose top from Farmers and bears smile-direct teeth. Like in a desert full of yellow bones, Sally has a spine bleached by the sun. Beautiful Sally. I heard we evolved from apes to homo sapiens because we started taking magic mushrooms and found God. My brain, your brain, Sally's brain, all grey, wet walnuts driving our meat machines. As we shrink and grow and shrink and grow and waste our time counting almonds and halving stock cubes and slicing cucumbers and pretending they taste like chips. Just eat some chips, Sally. You and your magic brain and desert teeth. Hair a golden helmet, plate held like a god's attribute, like a hungry Minerva. Like an ancient statue slowly shrinking as the desert winds of seashells and low-calorie rice cakes blow all around you. Sally, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Across the distance, you watch me like the Mona Lisa, like a predator or a carnivore, like something hungry. Um, the last one is one I wrote actually about a year or so ago, but I thought I'd bring it out again because um, I want to. Uh, it's called Animal Attic, and it's about the animal attic. Because um, I'm really creative with titles, and I really love the animal attic. Um, peeled from its skin, the skull of an arctic fox laces its teeth together, needle against needle. Across polished hardwood, through cut glass doors, over the front case crustaceans and spine vertebrae, the fox stares at itself. Glass eye, not its own, scrutinising the sockets of its vivisected skull. Go on. Unlock the cabinet and part the glass. Reach out your hand. Let me taste you. Against the wall, between bush-tailed Fasca-gale and snub-nosed Tasmanian devil, bones, spines, fanned out like an obsessive platter. Carnivorous feast, picked apart, eviscerated. Vertebrae look like tree trunks, marrow annual rings, enticingly separate, as though the neat disc detaches. More dissection, the yellow suspended eye of a blue whale sits in a jar above its jaw, which snaps its supporting rod as it speaks, look at me, let me see the whites of your eyes. Across the room, an aviary of dead things. Grey butcher bird head on, beak needle sharp. Find out how I got my name, little children. Poke your morsel fingers through my glass, I'll show you. Perched below, a corvid chorus shouts scavenger filth. We may be dead, but we'll shred you, fucker. In the nights, a laughing kookaburra regales them with stories of wet mornings. When the sun rises and breaks into a million suns, reflected spherically, in each scarab bright dewdrop, Lepidoptera blue takes their minds off the wires in their bones, the stiffness of rods in their skin, their blindness. And in the day, school groups, everyone come close, read the placard beneath Sultan the Lion's exhibit, shot while trying to get back in his cage. A girl with blonde hair stops to look in his glass eye, his open sawtooth jaw is higher than her head. One wrong move would crush her homo sapien skull. She kneels to read, as though in prayer, Dimite nopis debita nostra, forgive us.
Thanks, Molly. Um, Molly, you don't seem like someone who should say the word fucker, so I really... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so I've just got a few questions about the um, work that you read and what you've been working on and what you hope it will kind of build into. Um, so you've said that the collection you're working on is this series of dramatic, dramatic monologues, which is an interesting form. Uh, I... I worked a little bit with Rachel O'Neill in my studies and she was also very keen on that. Um, So yeah, I'm really interested to hear more uh, what what is it about that form that's captured you and are there any challenges that come with using it? So I love dramatic monologue as a form because I don't really like um, talking about myself despite the fact that I'm talking about myself. So I think with dramatic monologue you can find stories to tell your own stories but by looking at things that hurt kind of side on so you don't have to think about things that are too painful too much. Um, So if I wanted to write about my own loneliness, which I did, I could write about Odysseus, you know, and the Cyclops left all alone on the island and blind. If I wanted to write about betrayal, I could write about Dido burning on the pyre. So I don't have to write about things that seem to me to be too close, too kind of unpoetic and Mm -hmm. dirtied in a way by the fact that they're mine. I can improve them by talking through the lens of something else. And the challenge of that is that I do it too much. Um, I took a writing paper with Magella Cullinan. And every time I'd submit a poem to her, it would come back with, please write something else, write about yourself, and (laughs) please stop writing about Greek mythology. Um, Because I was really going through a Percy Jackson phase at the time. Um, Yeah. Thank you. Um, Yeah, that's that's interesting, because I suppose, I'm just thinking, we often send uh, feedback to styling submissions we get if they're either from a high school student or if they're very close to making it into the journal but just haven't quite got there and probably something I feel like I say a lot is um, yeah this is good writing but I want to know more about like you and your voice and yeah so that's kind of interesting feedback but um, but yeah I mean I think your work achieves a balance of there's, there's you coming through but it's through these kind of other vehicles so yeah, but it's, it's hard to get there, I think. And that's probably something that a lot of young writers uh, are, are trying to hit. So, yeah, it's quite a tricky mark. Um, and so in grouping these uh, dramatic monologues, um, just when I was like listening to that selection, I'm wondering uh, how, I mean, maybe you don't have to know the answers to this yourself yet, but how you will look at uh, the kind of balance you're going between the pieces and like I'm just thinking like the Sally piece is quite different from the others and how how will you know when that group is complete yeah so with my kind of inspiration I guess for dramatic monologues in a collection is Caroline Duffy's The World's Wife which is quite an intense like every single poem is about a different or from the point of view of a different woman in history Whereas, like you said, mine, uh, I do have the occasional one that isn't that. Um, So when I was trying to put some poems together for a competition recently, I kind of split it up into sections. And because religion is something I 
quite love and partake in quite a lot. I split it up by using the liturgical year. So I had like ordinary time as poems that were more personal and I had um, kind of passion tied as poems that were kind of love poems, which I also write a lot, but don't share because they're deeply embarrassing. Um, and then another section for poems that were dramatic monologues. So it, I think it didn't work so well because the reason I used the residency for working on those was because they just weren't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I were to put together a collection, I'd want it to be more cohesive. Yeah. Right. And so have you, can you talk a little bit uh, about the particular pieces you've worked on during the residency and how you feel they're going? Yeah, so I had um, a few. I had one about the, um, the Sphinx, which was back to my Greek mythology phase, and another about Bathsheba. She's a person I've been thinking about a lot. If you've, uh, if you've read your Bibles, you'd know about her. But um, anyway, the story with her is she's from the famous, if you know the song Alleluia, she's bathing on the roof and David is being creepy and staring at her. Um, and the King David is like the, the big figure, the protagonist, and there's never really anything from her point of view. We don't know what she's thinking. Um, and I'm glad that retellings and things from different angles have become quite popular now. It's like people are able to look past these massive heroes and see the kind of more ordinary, more kind of relatable, I suppose, stories behind them. And I like that kind of thing. That's what I tend to write about. Cool. Um, and there's something that you mentioned that I just thought I'd pose to both of you now while it's in my mind because uh, I think if I was a young writer and in the audience I'd be like what was that hang on go back uh, which was that you mentioned this free writing idea so is that something that uh, either of you I mean you obviously do it quite regularly Molly but can you speak a little bit about how that works and I mean I realize it's just like right 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 but I have tried it a few times in the past and I don't end up with anything good <laughs> um, so can you talk about do you use a timer setting or how you how you do it um, timing timers really stress me out um, so I don't but I never before I started using free writing which I actually learned in that same writing paper from Majella Kulanan which is just such a good paper recommend it if you're still taking papers but anyway um, so you just kind of what I do is I just sit and I just write without worrying about line breaks or stanzas or any of that kind of things before that I would write a poem and that was it, it was divinely inspired and messing with it was messing with the will of God and it was perfect in every single way and anybody who said it needed to be changed was wrong and I was right um, but with the free writing I can just kind of let things stew in my draft book for a while and come back and pick out sentences I like and okay. cut things down. So my poems are a lot shorter now, which I think is better because they're more um, condensed. But and yeah, so is just, that how you would generally start one of those sessions? You would have a line that yeah. you're going to start with? Okay. You probably find the same thing because you also write poetry that like a line will come to you or a word and that is often the a good way to start. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just find that so free writing you can as you said do it in different ways uh, some people say you know you set a 10 minute timer and you just just go where your mind takes you or yeah may not want to feel that pressure uh, but yeah I'm pleased for you that it has good results <laughs> yeah because I mean it's different for everyone um, do you use that technique at all Erin? I think I use it when I'm trying to like get out of because I work a lot with writing obviously I work in a magazine mm-hmm. when I try to get out of like 
my journalism head where things are like real That's and like idea. I'm editing yeah. things a lot into just writing things down and kind of not caring how good they are until I go back and edit something I think it's quite useful just to write down kind of all my thoughts or something that might be a story or might not mm-hmm. until I can kind of get into that space where I can be creative yeah. yeah yeah sometimes it's I mean I think I've probably used in the past is like you know if you've got a block of time that you're going to use to write it's kind of sometimes daunting to know what to start with and that's kind of just a way to loosen yourself up and and get into yeah, it definitely. yeah um great thank you molly so i'm gonna move to erin and we'll get erin to share some of her story that she's been working on um and then we'll have a few questions yeah we'll pass over to you all right so i think this is quite different from what molly was working on in that it's a lot less directly inspired by the museum um it's a kind of idea of having these birds trapped in a flat and seeing how these flatmates would respond that has been floating around in my head since the end of last year and I've kind of just become fixated on it so that was what I wanted to work on. It didn't really have a lot of death in it before I was in the museum and then I think I saw all the taxidermied birds and now it has some death in it so it's kind of it's gotten a lot darker from the funny story I initially thought it was going to be. Um, yeah so this is the first kind of part of life and death in the lounge of a North Dunedin flat. This is the story of how three birds were brutally murdered in the lounge of our flat. I vividly remember some things. The patches of thin, red, exposed skin where their feathers were torn. Sacks of bone and blood lying on the windowsill of the lounge. But I don't know all the details. Some details are known only to the birds. Others to flatmates I don't speak to anymore. And some to a cat named Gregory. I was in Nelson when the birds became trapped in the flat. Supposedly, Chris didn't see the birds that night because he lost his key and entered the flat through the back door. He was coming home at 4am from his girlfriend's place, or town, or another girl's place after town. He didn't sound too sure about where. That would be suspicious if it was anybody else, but it rings true because it was Chris. When Kate saw him at noon the next day, he was making a greasy, hungover breakfast and talking loudly into his airports. Kate hadn't been in the lounge the previous night either, because she stayed in her room studying. She had an exam the next day, a stressful one, and didn't discover the birds until she came home through the front door. She was going to lie down on the couch, because the exam did not go as expected, but there the birds were, flapping around in the lounge. She screamed, ran out, and shut the door. She sent me a text saying, birds in lounge, help, and then forgot you were away. We'll ask Chris, but he may not be helpful. I got back at about five that evening, and the birds were still there. I ditched my bags in my room and was sucked into the argument between Chris and Kate. I was tired, it had been a long drive, and we were drinking red wine goon to deal with the fact that the birds were trapped in our lounge. It wasn't working. Chris and Kate were angrier with each other than usual. Kate was sitting hunched over at the dining table on an office chair, thick hair falling like a curtain between her and Chris. The chair was deliberately swivelled away from Chris and towards me. She didn't believe Chris and was making wide eyes at me to show how little she believed him. Birds are loud, she was saying, in almost a whisper, 
her voice sharp with accusation. How would you not notice them when you came in? She was facing towards me, so it seemed almost like she was talking to me, but I knew she wasn't. It was your pizza, he was saying in a calm but determined way. Who cares, I thought. Their argument was going around in circles, because really it wasn't that complicated. There was the question of how the birds got in, the window, the question of why they came inside, the pizza, the question of whose pizza it was, Kate's, and the question of who had shut the windows and the curtains when the birds were already in the lounge. Unclear, but probably Chris. I mainly felt confused about why no one had done anything about the birds, which had been there all day. Chris and Kate liked to blame each other for problems in the flat and force me to judge which of them was right. I hated it, constantly being forced to resolve their little spats and pretend I didn't know they were sleeping together. What kind of birds are they, I asked, sick of the argument, interrupting Chris's observation that the pizza was pepperoni, even though Kate was going vegan. Oh, said Kate. Chris just looked at me. Dunno. All right, I said. I'm going in. They huddled behind me, surprised that I had volunteered. I felt capable in that moment, like the kind of person who calmly traps an agitated wasp between a glass and a piece of paper. But that confidence dropped away sharply. As I pushed on the lounge door, which was always hard to open because of our damp flat, I was wobbly, doing something wrong, traversing some boundary that my flatmates were wisely avoiding. I kept pushing anyway. I don't know what I was trying to prove. Kate slammed the door as soon as I was in the lounge, yelling, Mal, don't let them out. The noise created a flurry of activity. I could hear the thrumming of the bird's wings, frantic and speeding up, a computer going into overdrive. I think I could feel the air move against my face. The lounge was dark and smelled faintly of bird shit, on top of the usual sour and greasy smell. The curtains were closed for no good reason. But I could imagine Chris coming in, taking one look at the birds, and deciding that ignoring them by shutting the curtains would be the solution. I stood quietly in the thick air and let my eyes adjust. There were the three bird-shaped shadows hopping around aimlessly on the carpet near the hem of the curtain. They were sparrows, small and helpless, and minding their own business. It was a relief. I walked towards them and they twittered, sweet, if slightly annoying sounds. Easy, I thought. This will be fine. Three sparrows in the lounge is fine and I can handle it. Things would have been different if they were the only birds in the lounge. But it was worse than that. There was an aggressive, cawing scream that didn't come from any of the birds on the ground. I looked up to the lampshade where I saw the gull's figure silhouetted against the faint glow of the curtain, a looming shadow with raised wings, frozen against the light as it looked at me. He was a beast of a bird. Not a nice little red-beaked or black-beaked seagull, a huge one with a black back and a yellow beak and wings that extend dramatically, the kind that seems like a bird of prey, the kind that gets sucked into jet engines and as one last revenge causes the planes to crash. As I stared, the gull launched itself from the lampshade and out across the room. He wasn't flying, it was more of a leap. The lampshade swung wildly in his wake. He headed towards me, a shadow, wings half-folded. He stretched his legs out and landed on the carpet, 
folding his wings back to his sides like he was pleased with himself. The sparrows jumped away one after another. They were fidgeting and glancing at the gull. I felt uneasy looking at them. When I was a child, we found a big grub in the garden and put it in a glass jar with a beetle. We didn't know the grub had sharp white teeth made for fighting and eating other insects. The beetle's guts were smeared across the jar within a few minutes. It was a massacre. That was all I could think of as I left the lounge. Erin. So I just wanted to start by asking, I'm really keen to hear where you got this idea, how it came to you, so if you can speak a little to that, that would be awesome. So I think it's one of those things that kind of happens in the flat is you end up with, I mean, I don't think I've ever had a bird trapped inside of the flat, but like there's a wasp inside and someone doesn't want to deal with it and so they wait until the flatmate that will deal with it gets home to resolve the problem and then just thinking about that and how we kind of avoid these problems in flats or how things end up getting piled onto one person that kind of thing Mm, yes I was getting like some flashbacks to flat politics and dynamics as you're I was like Erin's flatmates are actually here in this room are are they now worried (laughs) about featuring I don't in your th- story. I don't think so. they're the flatmates I'm referring to, All so right. it's fine. Yeah. Safe for now. Um, so another question is, uh, I've read a few of your stories where you actually inhabit uh, characters different from yourself as the narrator, uh, which as a poet always seems very challenging. So can you talk a little about how you go about that, how you go about constructing and inhabiting uh, a character? Yeah. I'm definitely, like, I see some people, you know, like in books about writing and things, people who create, like, lists of things that the person is going to do, likes and dislikes. I'm not really like that. I think I really like to put the characters in a situation and their actions kind of determine who they are and then from that, that's kind of how I will build a character. So I think, I don't know, they're almost like, like Sims, like the game Sims, I just kind of put them in different situations and test out how they will respond and kind of from that figure out like who I need to be in the story. Right. Yeah. And so speaking of response, uh, yeah, you're, so you're obviously a, a quite a serious journalist uh, and you write a lot about the student experience you've written about uh, the COVID response uh, for places such as the spin-off and the villainess. Um, and I'm just wondering about how your um, like how looking at those types of issues feeds into your work, um, and how do, how do you think that's going to play out in the story? Yeah, I think journalism definitely gives you a sense of how different people respond to different things. Like things as simple as being asked a question, you get such a range of responses from people, even when you're asking multiple people the same question. So I think. I guess that's part of how I build these characters in their responses. But also, yeah, I think definitely over the past year with the COVID response, we've seen a lot of this kind of dichotomy between action and inaction, and that's something I'm definitely interested in responding to in this story. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, so I'll keep, I'll keep thinking about your pieces, but I want to get to a few uh, more general questions. 
around being a young writer, but also your experience on the residency um, and and shaping that work while you've been there. Um, so I might I might start with I'm quite interested to hear how how it's been being in that museum space um, because it's quite different from like traditional residencies where you might be just like have an office that's very quiet and you're shut away this is quite a public space you're actually working in like the public area although it's like set back a little bit from what you guys have told me um yeah you're 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 kind of out amongst people so can you speak a little bit about what that experience has been like um and and how this i mean this is both of your guys' first residencies, yeah. So, how the experience has matched up with what you thought it would be like, and if there's been anything surprising, or yeah, just a bit about that museum space. Um, I, it was kind of how I pictured it. We had a, like, I liked to inhabit the little desk, and I noticed that you liked the couches. Um, yep. But we were kind of back in this very well lit space, um, and it wasn't particularly busy while we were there. And I interacted mostly with the, um, the tour guides who were kind of wandering around, and not so much, actually not at all, with the public. Apart from one time that I went to the bathroom and I opened the door, and somebody was just shitting with the door wide open. And that was really beautiful and really took me back to my retail days. <laughs> um, I wish I was joking. But, no, so I, I love chatting to interesting people who are kind of really into what they're into um, and have interesting interests. Good, good language in that sentence, yeah. Um, so, like, there was one lady who was... They all, like, seemed to specialise in different things. One lady was really an Egyptologist, and there was an ornithologist, which I thought was really cool. Um, there was someone who was really into medieval weaponry, and he was, like, demonstrating some sword-fighting moves, and he, like, led me over to this sword that this model had that was inset with shark teeth. I was getting a little bit too enthused about the shark teeth. Um, so, in, in that aspect, that it's kind of a really different place, not anything you'd normally do. It was, I thought I found it really creatively inspiring. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it because I think we're kind of in that middle atrium area. So it's really good for people watching as well as like you're really close to all of the exhibits and you can walk around. So I think, yeah, it's interesting watching just groups of people kind of wandering around. And I feel like it's often like, a place where people are wandering around when they're a bit lost or they're not mm-hmm. sure like which exhibit they're trying to get to they're kind of just like walking past you in these groups with their face masks on that's been interesting um yeah yeah I imagine it's really good for like listening into conversation that would be my jam if I was there sorry what was that a bit louder um yeah so it's it's kind of yeah it's a really interesting space and and cool because I think yeah, like I say, a lot of the time it, it seems that residencies, uh, it's all about the quiet alone time. So this is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, and so to speak a little bit about being a young writer, um, what what do you guys think is working really well about the kind of New Zealand literary environment or, or even more particularly the Dunedin one at the moment and um, what do you think are, are the difficulties of being a young writer now? Um, I've been in Dunedin for a while um, been here since I was about seven or eight so you know, decades and I'm, I'm absolutely ancient but I think the Dunedin scene is really good because there's like a straight I've 
I can't really compare it to other places. There's like a lack of pretension. You, know, you can ent- interact with these really incredible, accomplished people, and they're just kind of ordinary, and it feels like nobody's trying to tear anybody else down. And once you kind of get into it, you realize there's a massive subculture of writers and people who love writing. And it's, I mean, even just something like this, the fact that people will turn up to listen to people talking about poetry and share that kind of love of writing is really inspiring. And as a, as a young writer myself, I find that really uplifting. Yeah. Yeah, I guess for me, my main experience, because I came down here for university, has been the people I've met through university creative writing courses. But, like, a few of those people I'm still in contact with, and it has been, yeah, a really supportive environment and I would definitely second what Molly says about it being like no one's trying to be competitive or anything we're all just supporting each other's writing and that's been really nice to have but I guess also I don't really have much to compare it to you know do you think there are any like challenges challenges to like I guess a lot of people young writers are aiming to get published so what do you think are like particular challenges that you found with that or maybe it's been it's totally fine but yeah do you have any any thoughts on on kind of roadblocks at the moment or maybe it is kind of I just think open yeah honestly before I did a university creative writing course with Lindley who was here um, I had never even considered submitting a story and getting it published so I think just the knowledge that that is something you can do it's not that scary and daunting because yeah. I feel like before that I had been doing writing and it was mainly for myself and you feel quite nervous about putting that writing out there and you're not sure when it's done. I feel like personally that was a struggle for me of just letting something go and saying, yeah, I've finished working on this for now, I can submit it somewhere. Yeah, yeah I agree. I think the kind of connections between everyone are amazing in terms of challenges it's quite an, it's a nice challenge to have in that there is almost too much choice that there are a lot of journals and there are a lot of people writing and while sometimes that's like oh my goodness you know there's so many people writing I'll never get anything published it's also good in a way because if even if you're not getting published somebody else is in one of the like many many journals that there are and they're all so different and so interesting so that's like it is challenging on the one hand but it, it's good yeah um, and I think we talked about yesterday when we called out for a coffee, but I'm keen to hear, uh, you know, people are quite focused on what people's writing practices, what their rituals, what their days look like are. So when you're not on a residency, what is your writing practice like? And, and do you have like a kind of a structure to it or how does it look? I'm definitely uh, pretty terrible at the moment at actually regularly giving myself the space and time that I need to write. Um, recently it's been mainly happening in my holidays, but during those days I basically just don't do anything except write and then drink a lot of coffee. Um, yeah, I don't think there's anything special about it. Definitely the free writing at the start, that is something that I would recommend if anyone's just struggling to start. Um, just writing anything down I think you kind of just have to let yourself be a bit shit and just write down some random things until you can work that into something I think that's probably the most helpful thing for me because I think I'm quite I don't know I tend to be quite like focused on how my writing looks externally well I think everyone is but 
just for those first drafts, just letting yourself write something that isn't polished and not going back and like changing a sentence five times. Yeah. Yeah, I agree about letting it be a bit shit. That's yeah. pretty liberating when you can let yourself do that. Um, mine kind of fluctuates. Sometimes it's really structured. Like um, during Lent this year, my like, Lenten discipline was to write a poem every day, which surprisingly I actually stuck to. And that got really easy after a while, and then I immediately stopped and got out of the habit, as one does. Um, but yeah, I get a bit... I don't really like reading how other people write. I think I was ranting about, about this yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, you know, oh, I get up at five in the morning and I drink three tumblers of whiskey and then I write a novel and if it's not a book of men, my book a prize winner, I burn it. Um, it's, yeah, everybody's so different, so incredibly different. And I just, writing's fun, you know? People get a little bit kind of scared of it, but it's fun and it's a hobby or a job or a practice and it's, I, I do it when I have time. Um, I'm going to open it up now so that if there are questions, we don't run out of time for them. Um, so, Ali, did you want to... Kia ora, Beth. So, just for everyone, that question was uh, asking you both to speak to how animals feature in your work and comment, reflecting on the fact that they both tend to feature quite heavily in the pieces that you've shared today. I think... Um yeah, for whatever reason, I often end up including animals in my work as some kind of device. I think, yeah, I think it's interesting with animals because they're not really characters in your work. And so the characters that are there end up projecting a lot of things onto these animals, which are just going around being animals and not really doing anything. And I find that quite interesting. I also, because I think every human has something kind of animalistic about them and I really like that moment when you're kind of talking about a person that you will know in a group of people and some will say they're a bit like they're a bit like a hummingbird aren't they or they're a bit like a cat and everyone's like yes that's exactly what they're like because animals are like useful ways of characterizing people and describing them and that's why I like them. Thank you, Shima. So just for all of our podcast listeners as well, the question was, when you're writing at a high volume, say, for example, doing something like morning pages or doing some free writing every morning in a structured manner, do you notice that themes are recurring again and again or that they're highly personal or does the experience change the more often that you write? Yeah, absolutely. I think I definitely return to the same themes, just kind of in different forms all the time. But I think once you start seeing that, you can kind of get a little bit stuck in it. And I think, especially when it's something quite personal, you see that theme cropping up in everything you write. But I think other people, when they read it, they don't see that. Um, yeah, so I think that is interesting, because sometimes we do feel like we're kind of like just going over the same territory and writing the same thing all the time even though it's in a different setting and might not actually appear to someone else. Yeah. That's actually a question I was also thinking a lot about recently because I was reading this quote, well, I was reading something, I think it was Mary Oliver was talking about how something like stones just pop up in her poems and her stories over and over again and how she thought that was perfectly fine and a good thing. And I agree because everybody has like their kind of things that are close to them and important to them and describe the world well for them. And having those appear again and again is, is useful. It's, I don't see anything wrong with it, and I do it, and I'm sure lots, lots of writers do. 
Thank you. So the question was, we've talked a lot about place and about Otsipuri being a beautiful place to be a writer. And Lindley was wondering if that feeling extends to all of Aotearoa or if the feelings are different about whether or not this as a country is a good place to be a writer. Yeah, are you planning on leaving us? <laughs> and if so, where will you go? <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. Yeah, I think I find New Zealand quite an inspirational place to be writing. Um, but yeah, no, I would say like half and half. My stories are set here and overseas. Um, but I feel like, yeah, I feel like New Zealand has something specific about it that almost makes my stories that are set here take on a similar quality, which I think is quite interesting. Um, yeah. Same. I think there's something really magical, particularly about Dunedin, because that's what I know. I don't really leave Dunedin. Um, but also about New Zealand. And it's kind of... It's, it's kind of like a small pond, but it doesn't feel particularly restrictive. And just out of interest, I have no plans to leave. I can barely go to the mall by myself without crying, so I can't <laughs> imagine myself leaving the country. Um... No, I think it's a brilliant place to be a writer, out of, you know, comparatively. Not just that there's, it sounds really kind of, I don't know, technical to say, oh, there's less competition. It's not quite what I mean, there's just more people who can kind of connect with you. I, I really like it. Kia ora. so that question was, how do you think that age impacts your writing? Do you think that you notice the effects of being young on your writing? Have you noticed any changes to how or what you write about? as you've aged, or do you see any changes in the future? Um, I think just naturally I've got a bit calmer about writing as I've aged. When I was younger, I was really fixated on having to do everything really young. I was like, if I don't get a novel published by the time I'm 16, I might as well just live in a hole in the ground, because I'm worth nothing, <laughs> and I never will be. Um, which just isn't true. I think the older you get, the younger you realize you are, and how much time you have. Um, and I've got more kind of prosaic about my writing, which has actually been helpful. I don't treat it quite so much like a magical divine inspiration. A poem has dropped into my lap and it's, it's formed perfectly. It's like any other things, that are kind of like learning the violin or learning to dance. The more you practice, the better you get. And it's not like a magical, mysterious thing. It's just something you can get better at over time. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I've become more controlled in terms of my writing I think I went through a phase when I was probably like 19 so like four years ago where I would write something and then look at it the next day and decide it was terrible and delete it um, which is not great but it was kind of this feeling that if I've written something and it's not perfect get rid of it it's not good enough um, I don't know where I got that idea from but Definitely, as I've matured, I've kind of become more stable of, like, I'll just have, you know, like, 50-word documents, and they can just sit there and be not that good. But I can come back to them at some point, and I'm not just going to delete all of it. So I think it's definitely become more of a controlled process for me where I'm writing something and happy to leave it. Yeah. Really disturbing to hear phrases like, as I've aged, uh, coming <laughs> from your mouth. But anyway, I'll just take myself off home to bed after this. Um, but I just, I'm going to pass over to Ali again uh, to wrap up. Um, but I really, uh, especially coming from a styling perspective, wanted to just make a few quick thank yous. Uh, Molly and Erin, obviously, um, you guys have been really generous with 
and thoughtful with your answers today and I'm sure that's going to be both has been enjoyed by the audience but will be really enjoyed uh, by people listening on the podcast so thank you uh, for sharing those thoughts um, a huge thank you to the festival Eliana, Gareth, the whole team I I honestly can't quite believe this is happening and just the, the commitment to keep pushing through all these challenges has just been so impressive and admirable and you've just made something really beautiful so thank you for doing that for Dunedin um, and also to the museum um, really amazing hosts who, who came on board really generously um, there were lots of other really cool supportive uh, venues as well that just due to the fluctuating uh, restrictions it just ended up settling with the museum but again just you know, great support from the community um, and, and thank you to the audience, to everyone who's here and everyone who wanted to be here. Um, yeah, it's just just awesome and awesome to see this festival and this community just continue to grow each year, like you've said, and I just can't wait to see kind of what keeps happening with it and just, yeah, go that funding and long may it continue. Um, so kia pai ora whakata, uh, no ora mai enjoy the rest of the festival enjoy your weekend and just yeah take care and look after each other and i'm going to pass over to ali kia ora and i just want to um you know continue that beautiful energy by saying saying thank you so much to louise thank you so much to starling for collaborating with us on this micro residency we did this last year as well and you know hopefully forever on into the future we love starling so much please check them out if you are not already acquainted with the beauty and smarts that graces their pages. Thank you so much to Aaron. Thank you so much to Molly. I'm so excited for the rest of your residency. I'm so excited to see what you do in the future, to follow along with your journey. I'm so excited to have you back at the festival in the future. Um, kia ora to Otago Access Radio, to everyone listening on this podcast. Thank you so much to Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature for helping us sponsor the podcasting. Thank you so much to the DCC and the Otago Community Trust for being our core funders. Um, thank you so much to Creative New Zealand for funding the 2022 festival. Everybody get your thinking caps on to think of all the beautiful things you would like to bring to us as we will be opening up expressions of interest about midway through next year. Other things I would like to tell you about, there's only a couple. The, lo- the lovely, beautiful Liz. Volunteer extraordinaire, bookshop runner of the year. We have a bookshop right over there. We have many fantastic titles, and I invite you deeply to go and peruse them. Uh, some highlights include a myriad of zines. We have works from Compound Press, from Kitsipai Press. We have works from local young people, including zines and prints, both framed and unframed. We also have the only copies currently in Aotearoa that are physically available of Out Here, which is a really, really beautiful anthology of writing from the queer and takatapui community in Aotearoa, and it is in my personal opinion, book of the year, maybe book of the decade, who's to say, maybe you should buy a copy and check it out. Um, Yeah, and a lot of really beautiful titles. Another thing we would love for you to do is make your mark on our make your mark wall. We have chalk pens. You can write anything you like as long as it's not hate speech, which I'm sure no one here would do anyway. Perhaps you can go away, have a nap, have a kai, have a coffee, have a bevy, and then come back and enjoy some more beautiful art. So, kia ora, thank you so much for being with us. And, yeah, can we pucky pucky please for our beautiful panelists?
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.